And the last thing that happened was he put his left hand on my forehead. He pulled my head back and put the blade right up to my neck. And I looked up at the sky and thought, if I do not get out of this situation now, I'm not making it out alive. Failing. 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 When we talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. A blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. I am really excited to welcome Casey Hilmer Ward. Casey just got married, so her new last name is Ward. But Casey is a motivational speaker. This is kind of tough to say out loud. She's a stabbing survivor, and she's also the co-owner and founder of Power Ride, which is a full tilt indoor cycling studio. Welcome, Casey. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for being here today. <laughs> I appreciate you taking your time, the time of out. Of course, of course. So I, I think maybe we start off with, I, I know listeners will say, oh my gosh, stabbing survivor. You don't hear that very often. Um, you want to give a little bit of background about where you grew up and then maybe can you take us to that day? or? or of course, yeah. So I grew up in Cincinnati. I grew up in Indian Hill. I lived there my entire life. Um, which is like a suburb of Cincinnati, right? Yes. And I think what makes the story, once I get into it, more shocking is that it's a suburb you would never expect this to happen in. Yes. When I tell my story, like to people who aren't from Cincinnati, they're always like, or even people in Cincinnati who don't know, they're just like, where were you running when this happened? Because they and assume it's a, it's a bad neighborhood. Exactly. And I was literally a quarter of a mile from my house. Like I could see my mailbox from where the attack happened. So I grew up in Indian Hill. I have a younger sister and then both my parents. And I have been active my whole life. So ever since I can remember, I either like played soccer, basketball, I ran track, I was never good at track, though. I never loved running. And then when I was 10 years old, the summer going into, I believe it was the fifth grade, my dad came home, like, from work one summer afternoon, and he's like, put your gym shoes on. We're going to go running. And I was like, who runs for fun? Like, I do not <laughs> want, I'm like 10 years old. I don't want to go run three miles. Anyways, my dad, you can't really say no. Like, I knew I could delay it, but I was inevitably going to have to go run with him. So... We either did two or three miles that day, and that was the first time I'd run for distance, I guess. And mm. when we were done, I thought, okay, I'm done. I never have to do this again. Well, little mm. did I know, like, every day for the rest of the summer, my dad would, would come home and be like, put your shoes on. We're going running. And at first, I dreaded it. And then as the days, like, weeks, months went on, I found out I was pretty good at running. Like, mm. sometimes... I would beat him home and other times he'd beat me home and I'm very competitive. So I think the competitive nature of it, I don't know that I was ever the best at any sport at that point in my life. I just was good at them, like de a decent like athlete and played a lot of sports. Right. But I think with running, I realized like, wow, I'm actually good at this. So Thanksgiving day of when I was in fifth grade, so it would have been like the year 2000, uh, he signed me up for the Thanksgiving Day race, and it was a okay. 10K, and I remember thinking, I've never run six miles. Like, I don't know if I can do this. Well, I did it. I beat him, and I think that's really what started my passion and love for running. So 
that's when I was 10 years old. In middle school, I started running for the cross-country team, and I would always finish, like, in the top 10 or the top 5. So it was the first sport that I really excelled at. So then on, it was July 13th, 2003, I was 13 years old. It was going mm-hmm. into the eighth grade. So it was the summer going to eighth grade. Um, I was training for the upcoming cross country season. So I got home that night and I asked my dad, like, do you want to go run with me so I can get my miles in for the season and train? Yeah. He, he was like, I'm kind of tired, but I'll bike behind you while you okay. run. And this is something he did a lot. Like, if I wanted to run, no matter how he felt, he would somehow either run behind me, bike behind me. There were nights I can remember in the winter when it gets dark at five, he would drive his car so slow behind me through this two to three mile loop around our neighborhood. So this wasn't anything out of the norm for him to just get on the bike. Okay. So we did a three mile loop that night and it's the same loop we always did since I was 10 and about probably like a half mile from our house, there's a really steep hill followed by like a 90 degree turn that just takes you to our house. So as we ran, as I ran up the hill and he biked behind me, I just progressively got further and further in front of him. Yes. And by the time I got to the top of the hill, but again, I was used to this. Like at this point in my life at 13, I was beating him for the most part all the time. So I got to the top of the hill. It was so hot. Like I said, it was July 13th. It was around 6 p.m. So it was really hot. I remember thinking, I just want a glass of water. So I turned the corner. I could see our mailbox, and I just started running home. And I saw, as I was running, this guy walking toward me. And I thought it was kind of odd that he had on, like, a sweatshirt and, like, cargo pants because it was so hot. it was really hot out. So hot, yeah. I just remember thinking, like, how is he wearing this? Like, it is so hot right now. And as he got closer to me, I recognized him. He rode my school bus, Mm -hmm. but he was in high school. He was so much older than me. I knew his last name, but I didn't know his first name. I just recognized him. So as I got closer to him, I ran off the road to get around him. And that's when he ran behind me, picked me up, kind of like you would carry a baby and ran me across the street into the woods. And the whole time I started screaming, he put his hand on my mouth. And I remember the first thought that came to my mind was, where is he taking me? And will I ever see my family again? So we get into the woods. Yeah. And is he much bigger than you? Like, yeah. So when I was 13, I was, I don't remember my height, but I was probably like 65 pounds. I was very, very tiny as a child. And he was over six feet tall and like 170 pounds. So he, he runs me into the woods. He puts me down on the ground. He's behind me the whole time. So I don't see him. So your Um, face is in the ground. No, I'm like seated. I feel like I was seated and he was seated behind me. Okay. Okay. But all I remember is he, the next thing I know, he pulls out a knife. And so my instinct was grab the knife. So my left hand grabbed the blade and in my head, like as it's happening, I remember thinking my hand is probably being cut open right now. Like, but just hold on, hold on. And then he got control of it and just started to stab me. So I knew I was being stabbed, but I just didn't feel anything. Yes. Um, I do feel like at one point I may have been on my stomach. Like I was just wrestling around trying to get free and I couldn't. And the last thing that happened was he put his left hand on my forehead. He pulled my head back and put the blade right up to my neck. 
And I looked up at the sky and thought, if I do not get out of this situation now, I'm not making it out alive. So my right leg just happened to be extended straight out in front of me on the ground. And I flung it behind me as hard as I could. I kicked him in the forehead. He got up. I ran out of the woods onto the street just as my dad had gotten to the top of the hill. So I'm like screaming to my dad, like there's a man in the woods who tried to kill me. My dad throws his bike. He runs over to me. He takes his shirt off and he was like, hold this against your neck as tight as you can and don't let go. And that's when I looked at my dad and I said, dad, I love you. I think I'm going to die. And my dad with such calmness and like conviction in his voice just looked at me and said, Casey, no one is dying today. And I think the way he said it, I just realized like my fight's not over. Like you have to keep like, keep going, keep fighting. So my dad picked me up. He ran me to a neighbor's house and he's like banging on the windows, like, Call 911, call 911. Do you remember this? I remember everything. It's so weird how, like, even the thoughts going through my head. Like, I remember laying on the lady's porch thinking, oh, my gosh, I am bleeding all over this poor person's porch. Like, I felt bad about that. Like, I had the weirdest thoughts, but I remember all of them. So then he... Do you remember it hurting really No, I don't remember any pain. I don't remember feeling anything. Um... I know, like, after all of it, when I was in the hospital, I think I was on morphine, but I still don't remember the pain of anything, the physical pain. Okay. So I'm on the porch. He ran out to the street and, like, flagged down cars, too, and was like, call the, call 911. Um, the Indian Hill Rangers came. Luckily, I was able to identify my attacker. I knew his last name, and I knew he is a brother, but I knew he was the older one. So I said, like, it's the older one. I don't know his name, but it's the older one. And then an ambulance took me to Bethesda North where they stabilized me and they're like, you're going to live, you're going to be okay. And then later that night, I was taken in an ambulance to Children's and I was in surgery for several hours. So I suffered four stab wounds. So I have one that like goes right across my cheek right here. I'll get like closer. Okay. So my dad said when like I ran out of the woods, it was like my right cheek was just hanging off of my face. Oh I have one gosh. that goes behind my left ear you can't really even see anything anymore and it came out like right behind the right side and then I have one in my side that went through my lung diaphragm and nicked my liver and then I have one right here that you can see and that went straight through my neck and hit my spine and it missed my jugular by a millimeter so the doctor said I was so lucky that the knife was as sharp as it was and nothing inside my neck like exploded and they even said like as professional surgeons, yes. they would not be able to put a knife through someone's neck and not hit anything the way that this knife went through my neck. So I was extremely lucky. Lucky. Yeah. So I went to Children's Hospital. I was in surgery. And then I was there. That was a Sunday night that this all happened. And I was released that Friday. So I was only there like six nights, maybe five nights. So can we talk a little bit about the PTSD? Because I know you talk about that. So, yeah. Because that's bit, I mean, although you didn't have, you don't recall the physical pain, I'm guessing your body went into total uh, shock. So it suppressed the pain. But um, I I would think the PTSD is. The mental repercussions were what was the worst of all of it. So like I said, I left the hospital on that Friday and, um, The following Monday, we actually went to court because my attacker was at the time 17, a week shy from turning 18. So we went to 
a hearing to put him into the adult court system. So and he got bound over. Yes. And so okay. the cops actually came in to the hospital and they talked to my parents and they were like, we need you to testify on Monday. And I looked at the cops and I said, why am I not testifying? Like this happened to me. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And they're like, you want to get up in front of him and talk? And I was like, yes. So oh speaking gosh. out has always been not easy, but so empowering for me to like tell mm -hmm. my story, especially at the age of 13. I was so young and I was so proud that like I saved my life. And I was also, I think, internally so angry at him that having the opportunity to sit there in front of him and like say, you tried to take me out, but you didn't. But you and didn't. I'm still here and I'm not going to be silent. That was really empowering for me. But the hardest part, like you said, was the PTSD, the mental. So the first night that I got home from the hospital, I remember I had to take a shower and my mom had to sit on the toilet in my bathroom because I couldn't be in the bathroom alone. Mm. And if I was on the second floor of our house and no one yes. was up there with me, I would freak out. Like I couldn't, someone had to be on the same level as with me at all times. I slept in my parents' bedroom on a mattress until I think the age of 15 or 16 because I was so scared to be alone at night. Um, but it was hard because here on the outside, people were telling me how strong I was. Right. Even when I was at the hospital, people were bringing me gifts and sending cards. And I didn't think what I did was anything special. I just was trying to like not die. Yes. yes, I was just trying to live. So I, I started to realize like everyone saw me as like this really strong person that I didn't want them to know how much I was struggling inside. So yes. like when the school year started that year, I got back to cross country practice the day I was allowed to start running again. I maintained straight A's. I hung out with my friends. I tried to do everything I could so that no one thought that there was anything wrong, wrong. going on behind, behind the scenes. So the only people who really knew about like my mental issues were my parents and my younger sister. And then it got hard because, so this is 2003 into 2004. And then I think 2005 is when we went to civil court and I had to disclose everything and say everything that All I was over. dealing with. And as a 15 year old, you're like embarrassed to say, I sleep in the same like room as my parents because I'm right. too scared to sleep alone. Or like, I can't, I need a babysitter with us on Friday nights if my parents go out to dinner with friends because I don't want to be at the house alone. Um, but I realized no one judged me for it. So right. I talk a lot about that nowadays because I think so often people are so embarrassed to admit something or say they're struggling. And really, as soon as you admit it, I feel like people understand and they come yeah. to your help. And, and I feel like once you admit it, because you've given yourself permission, there's freedom in that. And yeah. it's almost like not as bad as you thought it was in your head. Yeah. Casey, what happened to him? Why did you have to go to civil court? Did so he we went to, we did not end up going to criminal court because we, um, we agreed on a plea bargain because they said if we went to criminal court, it could get to the point where I was going to college and it was still, we were either still in court or it was in appeals court and stuff. So we did a plea bargain where he was in jail for 10 years on probation five years after he got out. And then if he messed up, he would go back in for eight years. And then we went to civil court just because a lot of stuff came out basically that made us think this could have all been prevented. prevented. Yeah. 
So and and did you win in civil court? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So and yeah. and he's out at this point. He's now. out now. Um, I have seen him at Kroger. Like I've passed him several times over the last few years. Not that many times, but at least a handful of times. I recognize him. I don't know if he recognizes me. Doesn't. But yeah, that's like what I deal with now. So is can I, I see can him. I ask you? That is insane. Yeah. Uh, can I ask you when you see him? How does your body react to that? Um, I feel like I get butterflies inside, and I get nervous, but then I also feel like really strong and empowered. And I almost like want to know if he knows it's me. It's really yeah. weird, but we're also in a very public place. If it were like him and me one-on-one, -on -one, like no one else around and we're like walking down the street, I would definitely turn around and like run the other way. Right, right. So I think I'm braver because I am in a public setting. But again, I, I mean, he looks somewhat different, but he was also almost 18 when this happened. Sure. I was 13 and now I'm 31. So okay. I think I look a lot different than I did then. Yeah. Oh my God. That is like, I I've never talked to somebody that that has happened to. Yeah. And it's still, I feel like nowadays, so that was 2003. So we're like 18 years out and it's yeah. still, it's weird. Like how you remember, I remember so many things so distinctly but then at the same time, sometimes I'm like, did that really happen to me? It right. seems so surreal and so long ago. And it's just, it's crazy to think that I lived through that. Do you think you'll ever get to forgiveness with him? Um, and how do you manage that? How do you manage the anger and the... Yeah, yeah, I definitely, when I was younger, had a lot of anger inside, but I didn't really let anyone know. I feel like to my parents or to my mom, I would say stuff. But besides that, I felt like I just had to be this beacon of positivity, strength, and, strength yeah. and bravery and positivity. Yeah. And even like in the, like at court, I felt like I had to come off a certain way too. And I didn't want to like get angry at him, but I did have a lot of anger for a long time. And then when he was released in 2013, I think I was a little bit nervous, but at the same time, I had come so far. So when I was in high school, I did see a childhood psychiatrist, like sometimes up to three times a week. I was never medicated. It was just talk therapy. Yeah. And I got to the point where I was able to go to college. So I went to, to the University of Michigan. I was able to like live alone. Like the fears that I had were gone for the oh. most part. I mean, I think sometimes if you're in a dark place passing, a man, you get a little nervous or sure. uh, maybe more nervous than a normal person would get. But yeah. for the most part, I was like healed of my PTSD. So I think by the time he was released in 2013, I had just grown so much that I didn't, I let go of a lot of the anger. And I think I had a lot of hope that the system worked and maybe he was going to come out and maybe never apologize, but just at least regret what he did or be a better person. Do you have any info that says he does? I don't have any info either way. So okay. he never had to testify when we were in court. Um, so he never spoke. I've never heard him tell his version of the story or speak at all. Um, and I don't think I was ever expecting an apology either. So I think that helps as well. I think some people that does help. You know, I think some people are expecting an apology or a huge gesture, and I never really expected it. I think the biggest thing was 
the anger I had. And I just, I remember thinking like, he just has to go to jail. But like, I had to go through like, like stabbed, I was stabbed. Like I, at 13, I remember thinking like, it's not fair. Why doesn't he have to like go through what I had to endure? Yeah. And now it's like, I'm past that. I'm over that. Like I let that go. So I think for me, that's, I didn't get an apology, but I don't feel like I need one. Like it's just letting go of the, all that anger is beneficial for me. That's I'm guessing from a lot of the work that you did. Yes. Yeah. Big time. I agree. You know, I, so I worked in a detention facility, juvenile detention facility, and, uh, the cops brought in, I think he was like 17 and a half. And I worked with the youth who were suicidal or severe mental illness. And so I went to go assess him and he assaulted me, punched me like two or three times in the face. And I, like you, grew up in a neighborhood where, like, I never saw fights. I didn't. And and I was like, whoa. And my my supervisor, the person that was in charge of psychology at the time, said, here's the deal. If you want to go home today, I get it. But tomorrow you need to come back. Because the day you delay more and more and more, your fear and anxiety is just going to increase and increase and increase. And it'll be harder for you to get over that event. Now, that event is 1% of what you went through. But I will say for a year after that, um, certain times in the elevators, if I'd see a kid that looked like him, um, and, and if I'm around people who are psychotic, my body automatically goes to a, a fear like a fight or flight mode. Yes. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's weird. Um, the memory that the body has. Yes. Yeah. And luckily I, I don't get that feeling a lot now, but it does happen. Or sometimes even like, even to this day, like a few years ago when I was still living at home with my parents, if they went somewhere and were gone for like a night or a weekend, being in their house, even though it didn't happen at the house. Right. It was like, I would hear noises or I'd just freak myself out, like staying there alone. So it's kind of like, but when I was at college, I could be in a house all by myself, totally fine. It was just that little area. And even my parents had said when it all happened, if you want to move, we can move. But I think I was just wanting to be so brave. Like, no, we shouldn't have to move. And like, we don't move and I'm going to, we're going to be tough and like stay here and, so, but yes, I agree. All the work I did really helped. And I think it helped that I wanted to be what I would call normal again and not have all these fears. I didn't like that I almost lived a double life with my friends and didn't tell them for years how scared I was on really? the inside. So putting in the work and seeing a psychiatrist and talking about it, it was like I wanted to do that because I wanted to get better and be able to go to college and live like a normal 18 year old. So today when you give motivational talks, what are the, what are your, what are your key uh, points that you want to get across or learnings? When I talk about my attack, it like, you can never give up. So the first time I gave a motivational speech, I believe I was 15 or 16. So I was either a freshman or a sophomore in high school. And I spoke with Debbie Gardner of the Survive Institute. I don't know if you know her. She was 
I can't remember if she's still in Cincinnati or not, but she was one of the first female police officers in the Cincinnati police force. And she has this whole institute called the Survive Institute, and she gives these speeches. And she was actually the first one who came, sent us a letter, reached out to us and said, like, you're not a victim, you're a survivor. And just reframing that in my mind, I was like, wow, she's right. Like, I don't even think she reached out so early on. I don't think I ever really thought of myself as a victim. But when she said it like that, I just realized, like, wow, that's a great way to, like, say it. But she then reached out a few years later and was like, I give these speeches. I would love for you to just come and tell your story. She's like, you literally did everything right. Like, most people would crumble um to the ground but you fought back you screamed you grabbed for the blade like you literally did everything you should have done so it was at Ursuline so it was all these girls and their moms and I just basically told my story I didn't really have a meaning to it I just kind of said what happened yeah I just told my story and I will never forget how many moms came up afterwards with their daughters next to them and just said I would have laid down and just died. Like, there's no way I would have fought back. I would have been too scared. And I was so shocked that these mothers were saying that. Mm -hmm. And I think from that day forward, I realized the big takeaway was you might be really scared, but you have to keep fighting and you have to keep moving forward. Even if you take 10 steps back, then you like get back up and you keep moving forward. Like with anything in life, things are going to get hard. They're going to get ugly, but you have to keep pushing forward. That's the biggest takeaway. Love that. Yeah. I, you know what else? I, I also feel like a, maybe it's just for me today, which is I don't have to pretend like everything is great. I can rely and share that with others, which you said you did with your parents, maybe not as much with your friends, but, um, you know, it doesn't all, I don't always have to look perfect on the outside. Right. And I actually gave a speech a few years ago at Felicity High School and they, this was, this was 2016. So I think they had had some suicides at their school and she like was telling me about it, the lady who reached out for me to speak. And I told her, I was like, I've never been suicidal. I've never had suicidal thoughts. However, I think I can make this speech that that like kind of touches on that. Relevant. Yes. Because like I said, when I was in the hospital, So many people, even at school, who I wasn't really friends with or didn't talk to, sent me letters. They came and visited me. So I kind of told these girls, I was just speaking to girls this night. I'm like, Mm -hmm. if you're going through something, like, I promise there is always someone there for you, whether you know it or not. I was shocked at how many people came out of the woodwork and just reached out and asked if I needed anything or just said how proud they were of me. And I'm like, you are not ever alone. Like someone is willing to listen and someone is willing to help you. So that was like, I just reworked the speech and added that in, but I agree. There's always, you have to be willing. That was another part of it. Like to just speak out. Like it is scary. I sat feet from my attacker numerous times in court and every time I would get nervous beforehand, but I knew I had to do it. Like I internally, I just wanted to do it. It, There wasn't another option. In my opinion, there wasn't another option. I cannot imagine being your parents throughout all of this. <laughs> yeah. So my dad, because um, he was the one with me, obviously, when it happened. My mom right. and sister were actually biking on the road that my attacker lived on when it happened. And they 
got back to the house and like heard ambulances but had no idea it was me that the ambulances were coming for so luckily my mom she was able to drive to the hospital that night like fine but my dad I believe I think he was in the ambulance with me or someone drove him because I know it really obviously shook him yeah I think still to this day I mean I just I don't know how I'd let my kids go out after that yeah you know what I mean or not be so angry yes which is so interesting you say that too because I mean we talk about stuff in my family but my dad and my mom I feel like they're just very private especially when it comes to emotional stuff or mental I don't know thoughts I I don't know like I don't feel like he and I have ever sat down and I've never asked how it really affected him but again I was so young when it happened that wasn't even a thought in my mind to do that but like looking back on from 13 to now I mean, he's always been a protective parent, but I never felt like he was overly protective the way you're saying that you would be if it happened to your yeah, child. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't you? Yes, and I, like, never saw, I knew he was, like, angry at the guy, and he's always said if he were any sooner or, like, if he had gotten to the top of the hill any quicker and, like, found us in the woods, someone... He would have killed him. Yeah, someone would end up have ended up dead because yeah. he would have been so mad. But... That anger never came through growing up. I feel like it was always just support for me and like, what can we do to help? But, and that's you know, something I've never uh, thought about until you said that. Yeah, I, I, the first thing that came to my thought, to my mind was from, um, from the OJ Simpson murders. And I was thinking about Ron Goldman's parent, father and sister, and how even to this day, now they didn't get justice, right? Yeah. Maybe that's the difference. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, it's no judgment on them. I'd be angry as hell too. Um, but yeah, I'm so, I'm happy that that is not the case. Yeah. 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 I feel like I've had nothing but yeah, support from both of them and I've never seen that side and maybe they did have to hide it or keep it in. I don't know, but it is interesting because I've never thought about that until yeah. now. Uh, okay. So, you know, with everything that's happening with COVID and with the stress that people have from that, I feel like you, you've been dealt a shitty card Mm -hmm. with, with that, but how does that put everything else in the world into perspective? I honestly feel like because of what I went through, I am very good at dealing with stressful times or, like when things get chaotic, I almost thrive. You're it's the really person weird. to call. Yes. Well, and I do, it's really bad. I will, I do feel like before things happen, I think out like everything that could happen or go wrong, yeah. which isn't great. But I think that's just because what happened to me was so unexpected. Right. And it happened in such an unexpected area that I never want to be shocked like that again. So in my brain, I'm like, well, if I've already thought of the worst case scenario, yeah. I'm prepared. Yeah. But with COVID, so like you were saying, I own a spinning, a fitness studio. So we were shut down, but I do know like a month before everything happened, I did start having anxiety and I didn't know where it was coming from. So this would have been probably all of February, beginning of March of 2020. Okay. I just felt like I couldn't get a deep breath or I'd be in the shower, like 
come on, like fill your lungs. And the only time I had that like easy breath was at night, like as I was falling asleep. But as soon as I was conscious, I just felt like there was something there. I didn't know. I was like, is something wrong with my body? Like, am I having like a heart problem? Like what is going on? And then it was the Saturday before everything shut down. I was going to work out at like seven in the morning. So I'm driving on the highway. It's kind of dark. And I realized that, because I kept, I'm the type of person too, if something's going wrong, I try to figure out like what it's stemming from. I was a psychology major, so I feel like yeah, I analyzed myself. Sure. So I kept for weeks, I was like, why do I feel this way? Like what's wrong in my life? What is happening that I feel this way? And I realized I felt like my safety was being threatened because at this point we knew nothing about COVID. We just Interesting. kept hearing about it and how bad it was in Europe. And I think I thought like, oh my gosh, my safety is in question or being threatened just like it was back in 2003. And it was like those feelings came up inside that I had not felt in a long time. But as soon as I put like my finger on what was causing it, it was like everything was lifted and I felt so much better. That's, Um, that is remarkable. And so, and I kind of had to tell myself like, you cannot live the way that you lived from like 2003 to like 2007. Like you can't live in fear. That's like not going to do you any good. You need to just keep putting, I, like whenever I get kind of anxious about something, I just say like, as long, it's like I give myself affirmations. I'm like, as long as you keep putting positivity out there and doing the right thing, good things will just come back to you. So then once I put my finger on that and relieved myself of all that stress and COVID happened, I felt like I was just ready to like tackle it. So it's something I almost felt like COVID. It's like, that was my attacker. So it's like, okay, I'm going for it. Like we're going to make it through this pandemic, even though we own a fitness studio, like I'm going to come out on top. So that's kind of how I think in stressful situations, it's like whatever is causing the stress or the unknown, like that's my attacker. And like, we're going to get through it. We're going to tackle it. And we just keep moving forward. That's an insane amount of grit and (laughs) resiliency. And I keep thinking, oh my God, people would pay millions of dollars to be able to get that. (laughs) So, yeah. And I mean, and I'm still a normal person who I have my doubts and I have fears, you know, and I'm scared of failing too. Like I catch myself sometimes like, Oh, I'm not going to do that. Like, cause what if I fail? And yet I'm here telling people all the time, like you're going to fail. Like I've had other failures. Like I got, I opened a spinning studio because I was rejected from 12 medical schools and none of them wanted me. So I'm like, I failed so many times and it's always led to something better, but yet I still get scared to fail or try new things or put myself in situations where I might not succeed. So yeah. So even though I'm able to like, tackle COVID and like whatever comes my way, there's still a lot behind the scenes. So I do want to ask really quickly before we end. So when you say full tilt indoor cycling studio, what does that mean? They lean side to side. So my gosh. Yeah. So it's a spinning bike. I say indoor cycling because the term spinning is trademarked. I think we've had to take it off our website. So now I just say indoor cycling, but anyways, they lean 22 degrees left and right. So it works your upper body, your core, your legs, oh and then it's just more fun. You can kind of shake them. So I actually found the bike at the University of Michigan at a studio when I was healing from running too much and having running injuries. So all oh. of these things, like had I not 
had running injuries, I never would have taken a spin class. Had I not been rejected from all these medical schools, I never would have thought about opening a spinning studio. So I do feel like a lot has either gone wrong or not gone the way I'd planned in my life. And I just... But the other plan was maybe better. Yes. The other plan turned out better. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you said you're a newlywed of how long? Um, Ten... Uh, since October last year, 2020. And I'm also eight and a half months pregnant. You oh my gosh. Tell. You can't tell from like, I can show you my side Oh my gosh. So uh, listeners, actually, she is like so <laughs> preggers. You so can't tell from the like You have to do up. a selfie. We're going to do a selfie because we always okay. do that with these. So you've got to show baby bump. I will. So I'm actually it's... due three days before our wedding anniversary. So my due date is 10-7 and we were married on 10-10 last year. Yeah. Love that. Um, Casey, you have been a gem for being on today. Thank you for thank sharing you. your story. You, you like filled my bucket today. So thank well, you. Thank you so much. I'm glad we made it happen. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian Donica and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on social media outlets at Fail Forward Pod. 